Nearly four decades after he transformed the oversight of state services for New Yorkers with special needs, Clarence Sundrum proposed a more ambitious initiative in March of 2012, issuing a comprehensive report that went beyond the state government's role in policing the providers who serve about one million vulnerable New Yorkers and urged state policymakers to take the necessary steps that would produce consistently high levels of care. Quote, true system reform must be broader than the agenda set forth by this report, wrote Sundrum, who had been brought back into state government a year earlier by then-Governor Andrew Cuomo, after New York Times reporting exposed serious, often criminal levels of abuse and neglect being perpetrated against New Yorkers with developmental disabilities in the state's care, and without repercussions for many of the offenders. Cuomo's legislative response in the spring of 2012 primarily revolved around the creation of a new watchdog and rules for reporting and reviewing allegations of abuse and neglect, but stopped short of the holistic re-examination proposed by Sundrum and cherry-picked from the report's specific recommendations, recalls Michael Seawriter, who was working in the State Office of Mental Health at the time and is now the head of the New York Alliance for Inclusion and Innovation. There's a bit of a bait and switch, quite frankly, that took place 10 years ago on that, where it was, hey, there's this good report, and it talks about all these good things, including the, the need to police the system. And we only got to the police the system part. We never made the investments. We never built the career ladders. We never did the staff training. We never did the, the investment in, in, in wages to be able to recruit and retain, and re, retain a workforce. That's the promise that has yet to be, yet to be fulfilled. The hallmark of the governor's legislation was the creation of the Justice Center for the Protection of People with Special Needs, a new state entity effectively replacing the 35-year-old Commission on Quality of Care that would police the wide range of services administered by the state's Department of Health, Office of Mental Health, Office for People with Developmental Disabilities, Office of Children and Family Services, and the Office of Alcoholism and Substance Abuse Services, as well as the State Education Department. The Justice Center would also be responsible for implementing new rules and procedures, including a hotline for reporting abuse and a staff exclusion list. In addition to omitting recommendations from Sundrum's report, the governor's legislative response also differed from the report's tenor, according to Bill Getman, who now runs the nonprofit human services agency Northern Rivers Family Services. For example, the Justice Center was started as an investigative agency. It was under the supervision of the um, criminal justice team in the chamber, not the human services team. And I think if you compare that to, to Clarence's report, what you'll see is Clarence saw a system that, yes, abuse can occur, and we should, we should hold those individuals uh, accountable. But he also saw the value of the workforce and how do we support the workforce through training, through career development, through fair wages. And he also saw the need for prevention. And I think the, the latter two points there were not taken up as strongly as the investigative purpose in the enabling legislation. If you go back to the Times articles, there was some horrendous examples in there. Individuals were not being held accountable or prosecuted under the law. And so I think the reaction by the governor's office at that time was we need to hold these perpetrators accountable. We need to take them to, quote, justice, and we need to use the crim justice process to do that. The focus on criminal justice was evident almost immediately once the Justice Center began operating in the summer of 2013, according to Mike Alvaro, president and CEO of the Cerebral Palsy Association of New York State, which he joined 20 years ago. They hired a number of law enforcement folks who came in, guns blazing, literally guns showing, to come in to investigate allegations of abuse and neglect in voluntary nonprofit agencies. And with that grew the folklore of the gun-toting justice center, uh, but also the idea that 
mistakes could be criminalized, that these law enforcement agencies are out to get our workers and employees. And whether that's true or not, that it, it really doesn't matter. What matters is that today we have the legacy of the gun-toting justice center. We have a workforce uh, that thinks of the justice center as gun-toting lawmen. The emphasis on law enforcement was not the priority of the Justice Center's first executive director, Jeff Weiss, according to Glenn Liebman, CEO of the Mental Health Association of New York State, who was friends with Jeff at the time. I thought he was the ideal appointment in the sense that he came from our world, so he knew the conflict that was going on internally about we don't want to be too punitive an agency, we want to make sure that the providers have a say in what's going on. And he was very, you know, again, very smart guy, f- full of wisdom. And I think he he tried to direct in that in that way. But again, you know, it's like anything in the state. It, you, you, you can run an agency, but you still have to report to top leadership in the state. And they might have a different vision than you have. He did his best to sort of navigate all that. And then he got, you know, pressure from the, from the top people who wanted again. They were responding to, from their perspective, uh, a real political problem about there are entities out there that are abusive and neglectful. We have to get rid of them. Eric Geiser, who had investigated allegations of abuse for the Commission on Quality of Care a decade earlier and is now the CEO of the New York ARC, said the Justice Center, quote, came in hot right out of the gate and overreacted to the inadequate oversight exposed a few years earlier by the New York Times. I think there was some political pressure placed on the Justice Center to be extremely aggressive, to come out of the gate and demonstrate effectiveness, a no tolerance, and um, really kind of an over-the-top approach to investigations that, that really I thought was unnecessary and was a result of a political pressure and not necessarily the reality, which is most of the workers and, our, and the workforce in our field are, are trying every day to do, you know, very good work. Uh, the governor said, you know, this is going to be a, a law enforcement entity. It's going to go after these bad actors in, in the system. And we want to be able to demonstrate publicly that you guys are effective. So, so go get them. And that was the approach of uh, Jeff Weiss at the time and his leadership. The investigative approach lacked the required sensitivity, according to Geyser, who highlighted a case in Sullivan County where an investigator pressured a person with a severe developmental disability to speak on their own, and it contributed to a rapid decline in their behavior. This aggressive oversight approach also had the effect of exacerbating recruitment and retention problems, according to Bill Getman, CEO of Northern Rivers. All of a sudden, they had a third-party investigator coming in who was challenging the work they did. And I think workers were afraid of their jobs and their career. The best human service workers in any of the systems are those longtime people who have passion and see it as a career. And they stay in the business for 10, 15, 20 years, regardless of the compensation. All of a sudden, the Justice Center came in, and implementation's rocky in a new law. And there was a lot of pressure on the JC to, to start up the JC quickly and get staff across the state and to, to reconcile the different categories of abuse and neglect by definition. So I think there were some situations out there where we were a little too heavy-handed. People would show up on campuses with kind of an investigative approach when, you know, an interviewing approach may have been better. 
The backlash from direct care workers and the criticisms from nonprofit agencies administering care were just some of the challenges facing Denise Miranda when she was brought on as executive director of the Justice Center in January of 2017, filling a gap left the year earlier when Jeff Wise died suddenly in January of 2016 after two and a half years as the center's leader. Miranda, who says she didn't fully grasp at the time the adversarial relationship some people have with the Justice Center, says she was drawn to the opportunity to work with vulnerable populations, which she had done at the start of her career in the Bronx District Attorney's Office, where she worked with special victims. Upon arriving at the Justice Center, she did a quote-unquote deep dive into their operations, including how they approached investigations, Miranda told the legislature during her budget testimony in 2018. While we are very proud of the work that has been accomplished, the Justice Center is no stranger to criticism. And I want you to know that we have heard you. I recognize there needs to be a balance between our oversight responsibilities and the anxiety and fears of the dedicated workforce. I have spent the past year meeting with service recipients, caregivers, direct care workers, and providers to hear their feedback. I have also spent considerable time reviewing the operations, policies, and procedures of the Justice Center. Under her watch, the Justice Center is credited by a variety of stakeholders with moving away from punitive investigations and demonstrating more tact with their inquiries. By the end of Miranda's first year at the center, more than 50% of their investigators had experience working in service settings, and they were all trained in trauma-informed investigative techniques to use when engaging witnesses, victims, and even suspects. So our work has not changed. Our commitment to ensuring abuse and neglect is weeded out has not changed. But how we approach individuals who are receiving services, how we approach witnesses, how we approach subjects is very, very different. And that's a culture change, right? And I'm very proud of the agency for being able to really pivot, right, and move in a different direction where we don't compromise the mandate that we have, but we realize that we need a more collaborative approach and having an adversarial approach was not working for us. She also began, slowly at first, addressing the Justice Center's penchant for secrecy, which resulted in families, provider organizations, and the media having limited access to information generated from their work. In 2015, a nonprofit advocacy group sued the center for not releasing records relating to their investigations, and in 2017, State Comptroller Tom DiNapoli dinged them for stonewalling his auditors. Miranda said their effort to reverse course and become more transparent was hastened by the change in governors in 2021 and can be seen today in part based on the scope and number of reports they now publish online. When I came on board uh, in 2017, you know, the amount of misinformation that existed regarding the Justice Center was really baffling. There was a lot of confusion with respect to what we did, how we did it, and the impact of what we were doing. And so these annual reports demystify the process, right? They talk about the work we do. They quantify some of the data points for abuse and uh, neglect investigations. They talk about the outreach work that we do. There's significant information on our website with respect to what happens during the course of an investigation. How do I appeal a case? So we're no longer... um, really relying on conjecture and rumors with respect to what the Justice Center does. The Justice Center is not the boogeyman. You know, I often say that. Putting out an annual report, making sure that we are able to answer questions, right, um, to make sure that that information is accessible, I think really goes a long way to making sure that we can separate fact from fiction. And that was a real challenge and continues to be a challenge, but certainly I think we've made great strides. The reports themselves, though, can be lacking in context, and some of the narratives can feel superfluous. 
Beth Rulis, Director of Disability Justice Litigation for the New York Civil Liberties Union, says the release of numbers is good, but questions the significance of the data the center proactively discloses. A spokesperson for the center says their annual reports, for example, are shaped by the requests for data they receive from the media and state legislators, including publishing disciplinary actions taken against employees at privately run providers, something the center did not initially do. In her second year on the job, Miranda had to address the Justice Center's credibility in responding to allegations of harassment in their ranks, with a 2018 report from the state inspector general finding that her deputy executive director, Jay Kianaga, who had previously led the center in an acting capacity, made inappropriate sexual comments, unwanted sexual physical contact, and practiced sexual favoritism in the office. This was disclosed a few days after Kianaga and the Justice Center were sued for sexual discrimination in May of 2018 by Patricia Gunning, a former top prosecutor for the center, who alleged that Kianaga had retaliated against her after complaining about his behavior. Gunning was let go from the center by Miranda in the summer of 2017. In August of 2018, on the Capitol Press Room, Miranda addressed Gunning's assertion that employees at the Justice Center were afraid to report bad behavior. So we've done a significant amount of um, outreach with staff here, and I've traveled to all the regions and spoken with staff the entire agency. They have my personal assurance that there's zero tolerance for retaliation, um, and they're aware of my commitment to ensuring that this is a respectful workplace. You know, certainly I believe that there's been a shift here in the tone and how we do business, and I do believe that people are putting a considerable amount of faith in the leadership that exists here now. In that 2018 interview, Miranda also addressed the then-recently-formed Sexual Abuse Response Team at the Justice Center, which was launched in the wake of an NPR series on the prevalence of sex abuse among Americans with special needs. So we've created a team um, known as SART, and that team is comprised of investigators who are receiving specialized training on responding to these types of cases, as well as um, a group of family and support uh, unit specialists. And so they will provide advocacy services as well as support services for families and victims. Our expectation is that we will be able to pursue these cases um, in the most effective manner, use whatever technology and uh, methodologies that are available out there and be experts in this particular area. Sex abuse is one of the most serious crimes out there. We know that it's prevalent. We know that it's significantly underreported. And so we want to make sure that not only are we working on prevention um, as well as education, but also making sure that we're holding bad actors accountable. But how successful they are at preventing sexual abuse against vulnerable New Yorkers and holding the perpetrators of sexual abuse accountable when it does occur is a major focus of the Justice Center's biggest critic, Michael Carey, who alleges that a third of the people under the care of the State Office for People with Developmental Disabilities and one-third of patients with the State Office of Mental Health are sexually assaulted every year. Those percentages, which amount to tens of thousands of cases a year, aren't echoed by independent monitors, and recent reports from the Justice Center found less than 100 cases of sexual abuse a year. The discrepancy primarily stems from his belief that only 3% of sexual abuse incidents in the system are reported, which is based on a national study from 1995 of sexual assaults against people with developmental disabilities. Based on his math, Kerry believes that the Justice Center is part of an institutional cover-up, quote, more dangerous than the Catholic Church. Pedophiles and sexual predators look and hunt for people that are nonverbal, They'll work the evening and night shifts. There's no supervision in these facilities. They can go in and sexually assault them at will whenever they want. 
and I provided the information about this fellow, Stephen D. Prospero, out in the Syracuse area. He, was, he, he said the New York State system's like a sexual predator's dream. He could do whatever he want with it, whatever, whenever. Beth Haroulis of the New York Civil Liberties Union and a critic of the Justice Center rejects Kerry's assertion that the state oversight produces a quote-unquote feeding frenzy, as he alleges. I don't think I agree with, with Michael that the group homes are set up to facilitate this. I do think that there will be predators, and these are vulnerable populations, and the O agencies, the providers, the staff all have to you know, be alert to the fact that you could get somebody who's never had a touch with the criminal justice system, who's opportunistic, who comes in to take a job like this intentionally to access the population. But I think that's an awful lot of hurdles, right, to overcome. So it will happen. But I, I do not think the system is set up to to encourage that. And the question becomes, how do you ensure and guard against this from happening? So, you know, I don't really think that it's appropriate to have one person on staff overnight because that person on staff overnight, even if you've done a background check, potentially has an opportunity to engage in an act of abuse or neglect or, you know, in a predatory situation, an act of sexual assault. Kerry's claims about the frequency of sexual abuse are emblematic of his broader critique of the Justice Center and its predecessor, the Commission on Quality of Care, which is that they're engaged in a coordinated campaign to ignore or cover up serious abuse and neglect, including torture and murder, like what happened to his son Jonathan, who was autistic and was killed 16 years ago by a caregiver from a state institution in the Capital Region. He contends that any investigations that lead to criminal repercussions, like the 69 arrests stemming from Justice Center inquiries in 2022, are simply a misdirection designed to give their oversight, quote, some level of legitimacy. They cannot be trusted. Denise Miranda needs to be arrested. I'm calling for her arrest. I've already called for her arrest from numerous law enforcement agencies. She needs to be arrested, prosecuted for handful or more of state and federal crimes from public corruption to obstruction of justice to to, uh, Medicaid fraud to endangering the welfare of incompetent or physically disabled. She knowingly is acting in a manner that is likely not only be injurious, but to be deadly to thousands and thousands of people with special needs, not just an OPWD, OMH, OASIS, all of the mental health agencies that report over there. They are protecting the system and the money. Most of the families receiving services, they're more afraid of losing services. They don't want to know how how bad the dangers are for most families. That's why you don't see an army of families down here uh, along with me. They're tired. A lot of them are, are divorced or they have one income family because they're trying to take care of their loved one. They're trying to keep them out of this system. They're in the system. I mean, you wouldn't believe the horror stories I hear. And these are Jonathan's friends and my friends. And I made a vow, David, I'll I'll end it on this. I made a vow to my son that I would never forget his friends. And I am not forgetting his friends. I'm fighting for them and I'm fighting for their families and their equal rights and their equal protections of laws that they've been denied for decades and decades. For more than a decade, Kerry has been a fixture in and around the Capitol, urging action by journalists and state policymakers. 
His advocacy has changed state disclosure laws and led to the New York Times expose in 2011. But no journalists, including from the Gray Lady, have ever corroborated the full scope of his allegations. Advocates for providers of care, including those with family members in the system, like Bill Getman, don't see the landscape the same way as Kerry. I've been on the state side. I am a consumer. My son's a consumer, and I'm a, I'm a provider. Uh, government's not that smart. The providers are not that smart to create a, a conspiracy theory. Denise Miranda argues that Kerry is making dangerous claims. You know, the experience that uh, Mr. Kerry had with his son is a tragic one. Right? I'm a parent. I can't imagine. I can't fathom a loss like that. That said, I'm an attorney with over 25 years of experience. I've worked as a prosecutor. I'm an officer of the court. I have served now under two administrations. To suggest that an agency that was actually created to prevent abuse and neglect is somehow part of this large conspiracy um, is preposterous to me and, quite frankly, insulting to the work that 500 employees do every single day. So if you assume that Michael Carey's worldview is incorrect, you trust that people employed to police complaints of abuse and neglect are, at least for the most part, actually trying to do their jobs, the question becomes whether the oversight system is designed and functions in a way for these civil servants to be successful, to actually root out abuse and neglect, whether by holding bad actors accountable or implementing meaningful systemic reforms. On the issue of accountability, the system is still plagued by some of the same shortcomings when it comes to disciplining bad actors that New York Times reporter Danny Hakem highlighted in his Abused and Used series more than a decade ago, which revealed that an alarming number of workers committing heinous acts of abuse were simply being shuffled from one job to another. In 2019, after a reporting stint in London, Hakem returned to this familiar ground. I looked again at the at abusive employees and what was happening. And I found that it still it still remains a problem. Part of it is just the arbitration process with the unions, but the fact remains that there are still many employees that the state is determining committed acts of physical abuse, and they just get moved to a different home. So in that sense, some of these problems are not getting fixed. While the trends he documented eight years earlier were still occurring, Hakem's review of disciplinary records for 120 employees between 2015 and 2017 found that the use of transfers had decreased. His reporting concluded in 2019, as it did in 2011, that the use of arbitration between the State and Civil Service Employees Association, which represents many direct care workers, allows abusive employees to stay on the job in some situations. The creation of the Justice Center was supposed to be accompanied by the adoption of a new table of penalties for workers, but implementing that system required bargaining between the state and organized labor that were never fully realized. CSEA declined to be interviewed as part of this project. According to Michael Seawriter, the president of the New York Alliance for Inclusion and Innovation, the current dynamic is, quote, not healthy and can make it difficult to conduct thorough investigations, although he does feel like justice is now doled out for most substantiated complaints. And we shouldn't just be shuffling people around. We should get the, get the individuals who are certainly repeat offenders of this out of the system, period, paragraph, end of story. And we shouldn't protect those individuals. They should, they should go find work somewhere else where they're not going to abuse people. And while Denise Miranda has made the case before the legislature that the current system holds bad actors accountable, she's also repeatedly noted over the years, and in speaking with us, that the Justice Center, like the Commission on Quality of Care before it, is not empowered to dole out discipline. She argues that employers are now better equipped to mete out punishments 
because of standardization in the discipline process and uniform definitions across agencies of what actually constitutes abuse and neglect. We have to trust the employers to make those determinations. They are the ones that are employing these individuals. They're the ones who know the value and the contributions of that employee, and they're really best suited to make that decision. And those decisions, following a substantiated complaint, can range from no discipline at all to an employee being terminated. On average, over the last five years, nearly 300 state caregivers every year have been fired, resigned, or retired following a substantiated case of abuse and neglect, with more than 1,000 private caregivers being terminated or resigning each year over the same period, according to Justice Center reports. But over the last decade, only a fraction of those workers, now up to 870 after 2022, have made it onto the state's staff exclusion list, which prevents them from ever again working at a facility under the Justice Center's purview. Since 2014, there have been 272 instances where prospective employees were flagged for being on the list, according to the center's most recent annual report. Workers get on this list by committing serious physical abuse, sexual abuse, or other severe conduct, which falls under the label of Category 1 substantiations. Workers can also get on the list by committing two Category 2 offenses within three years, and this includes conduct that significantly endangers the health and welfare of a service recipient as a result of abuse and neglect. Despite the majority of terminated workers not ending up on the exclusion list, it is regularly trumpeted by Denise Miranda and supporters of the Justice Center as evidence that they're preventing abuse and neglect. Another recurring concern about the oversight of care for people with special needs is that the Justice Center, like the Commission on Quality of Care before it, doesn't conduct the majority of investigations into complaints of abuse and neglect, with less serious cases being referred back to the providers to investigate. This arrangement is a red flag for some industry observers who argue it's inherently against the interests of the provider to substantiate complaints against itself. According to Denise Miranda, the Justice Center reviews the findings of delegated investigations before they're concluded, and the Justice Center needs to sign off on any determinations. If we find that the case is not complete, that it is lacking information, that witnesses that should have been interviewed are not interviewed, we'll send that case back and we'll ask for the, uh, the investigation to be reopened and to continue. Once the case comes to the agency, the only entity that has the ability to determine whether a case is substantiated or not is our general counsel office at the Justice Center. So we look at every one of those cases, irrespective of who does the determination. We determine whether a case is substantiated, and if it is substantiated, we make the determination as to the category level. And should a person decide to appeal that case, we defend those cases. So making sure that those cases are investigated appropriately and that we're making the determination accurately is very important. That is the layer, right, that ensures that we're talking about, again, similar outcomes, similar definitions, similar standards. But that doesn't mean the Justice Center's investigative processes and their oversight is perfect either, as they have been faulted for being out of compliance with state and federal requirements, including in a 2021 audit by federal health officials. One high-profile area where the Justice Center's authority has changed is its ability to prosecute cases. As originally envisioned by Clarence Sundrum in his 2012 recommendations on what the Justice Center could look like, he envisioned the new entity being a resource for prosecutors. But the legislation pushed by then-Governor Andrew Cuomo went further. I think the way it was phrased made it sound like the Justice Center could, could go off and prosecute these cases on its own without the involvement of a local district attorney which obviously creates a problem with the traditional role of district attorneys as the local law enforcement agency. 
The notion was that the, the Justice Center would be a resource to, to those prosecutors. In bigger counties, certainly in New York City, Long Island, you know, where you have very, very well-staffed and well-established and sophisticated prosecutorial agencies, they have actually sex crimes units and so on that could prosecute these cases, probably not require much assistance from the state. So the idea was that the Justice Center would, would be a resource for these uh, smaller counties to be able to invoke a law enforcement sanction when one was appropriate. And while the Justice Center has primarily assisted district attorney's offices and brought cases with the blessing of local prosecutors, they did pursue cases on their own, with some of their convictions eventually tossed out by appellate judges before the scope of their special prosecutors was ultimately narrowed by the state's top court in 2021. Former Assemblymember Tom Abenanti, a Westchester County Democrat who introduced legislation at one point to repeal the Justice Center, agrees with the findings by the State Court of Appeals and accused the special prosecutors of grandstanding. They were trying their own cases without permission from the district attorney to do so. And their cases got dismissed, rightfully, because that's not their role. After having their concurrent prosecutorial authority invalidated, Denise Miranda says the center doubled down on its existing collaborations with district attorneys. For us, our focus has always been, again, accountability. And so, you know, we work with county prosecutors. We had to work with them before this case was brought. We work with them now. And again, if they need us to supplement an investigation, um, if they need us to prosecute a case, we will. We're involved in those cases in different capacities, of course, and that's fine. But making sure, um, again, that these uh, cases move forward in the criminal context, that's our priority. Washington County District Attorney Tody Jordan, a Republican who recently served as president of the District Attorneys Association for the state of New York and whose time as a prosecutor has coincided with the history of the Justice Center, credits them with being helpful in a number of instances. It is nice to have a resource where you have resident experts that can help in navigating challenges that very often become common, whether it's a, a, a complex narcotics case or certain types of DWI prosecutions or homicides or white-collar crimes, especially like tax stuff where there's really unique, you reach out to taxation finance. Um, in this instance, with the Justice Center, depending on the allegations, you can have a victim or a witness who has communicative challenges. And so having someone who's, who's navigated those waters before and has had to deal with those challenges to have them available to assist has, has been great. Local prosecutors are typically alerted about investigations by the Justice Center whenever they suspect potential criminality, which resulted in 208 notifications in 2022, 167 in 2021, 171 in 2020, and 296 in 2019, with notifications dramatically higher before that because of a lower initial standard for potential criminality. About a third of the recent referrals have resulted in arrests, according to the center's annual reports. In some cases of egregious abuse and neglect, though, like at a state-run group home where maggots were twice found around a patient's breathing tube, the Justice Center can conclude that no individual is personally responsible and has instead determined the fault lies with the broader work conditions. In these cases, as well as where individuals are deemed culpable, the center issues corrective action plans that are designed to prevent the same problems from happening again. Justice Center staff then follow up each year with hundreds of unannounced audits to monitor the implementation of the plans. 
this aspect of the Justice Center's work, in addition to other guidance they issue to prevent abuse and neglect, largely occurs outside of the public eye, which runs counter to the way Clarence Sundrum operated the Justice Center's predecessor for two decades. I think that the public voice and, and the sort of the use of a bully pulpit, I think is, is an important advocacy tool on behalf of people who often don't have an effective way to make their voices heard. And that's something that I, for one, would like to see more of. The Justice Center has also not been vocal enough about documented violations of care for mentally ill people in the state's prison system, according to advocates for prison reform. These violations include placing people under the care of the Office of Mental Health into solitary confinement, which is prohibited by a 2019 state law. Halt Solitary campaign member Scott Palchowitz also challenges the Justice Center's findings that two of the three prisons they inspected in 2022 were in compliance with updated solitary confinement laws. Their definition of compliance is by far way too narrow if they come to that conclusion, because what we've seen in the past with the shoe exclusion law and now with the halt law is when they say in compliance, they are sometimes looking at very technical pieces like uh, was a suicide prevention screening provided within a time frame that was required, as opposed to are all the components of the law being followed? And we know from Doc's own data on its website that's required to be reported uh, because of the HALT law and by Doc's own testimony, public testimony, they have admitted that they are in violation of the law. They have publicly admitted it. In response to this criticism, Denise Miranda argues that solitary confinement reforms are not easy to implement, but stressed that they didn't grade compliance on a curve. I can understand that from the advocate's perspective, they would like to see more. I think that we all agree that we are dealing with uh, resource issues and a staffing shortage across the state workforce, and certainly DOCS and OMH, um, who are the other partners in the HALT implementation, um, are not immune to that. And so we do need to be realistic with... Um, the resources that are available and the time frame that we have been given. That said, we will hold um, both state agencies accountable and we don't shy away from making recommendations or pointing out issues we believe warrant their attention. And all of that brings us to today and 10 years of life under the Justice Center, which proponents say has led to safer conditions for New Yorkers with special needs, even though allegations of abuse and neglect and substantiated cases have remained relatively consistent. But for Michael C. Ryder, president of the New York Alliance for Inclusion and Innovation, evaluating the Justice Center can't be the only component of judging the state's care for vulnerable New Yorkers, as he notes that Clarence Sundrum's 2012 report envisioned the Justice Center to be just one element of a comprehensive overhaul needed for the human services system. The question I now offer is, is it time to ask Clarence to come back and do another unvarnished review of the systems and, and to make, you know, to, to put forward another set of recommendations because clearly we have not fulfilled the vision that he articulated in that in that paper. And on the third and final installment of our Justice for All series, we'll try to provide that holistic evaluation as we consider what the state can do to improve the quality of care it provides to about one million New Yorkers with special needs. In addition to diving deeper into the work of the Justice Center, including how they receive complaints and their approach to investigations, we'll also turn our attention to the point of care itself. <laughs>